You've been listening to the weekly sermon from the Vine Church in Madison, Wisconsin, a spirit-filled family that makes disciples and plants churches among neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration. For more information and service times, check out our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Good morning. I was ready for that one. Uh, Okay, so here we are, Matthew 22, the greatest commandment, probably a little bit of a more familiar passage for some of us, but um, for those of us that is familiar, now we have the opportunity to come back to it, fresh eyes, and see what it has to say. And so when I think about this passage, I remember growing up, and I remember Sunday school in third grade. I remember that's when we learned what the golden rule was. Do you guys know the golden rule? Yes. What, I hear some kids in the audience. What is the golden rule? I was optimistic to think that they would respond. Golden rule, right? We know this. Uh, treat others how you want to be treated. Uh, or if you grew up fancy like my wife, it's do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Right? Like, this is the golden rule. We know this. We, we've heard this. And so... I don't know if you can imagine me, Sunday school, uh, third grade, I was eight, I think, uh, and my brain is so far from developed, and the only thing that I cared about or wanted to do was watch cartoons, play Pokemon, draw, and eat candy. That was it. And, and the candy thing worked out in Sunday school because our teacher gave us candy, but only if we memorize the things they wanted us to memorize. And so, that's how I memorized a lot of things in Sunday school, was with candy motivation. Things like John 3.16, uh, you know, the books of the Bible song, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Okay. Uh, and eventually, I, I memorized the golden rule, and I can't help but see that my motivation for this was just 100% candy. It was pure motivation, uh, sugar motivation. And my teacher uh, bought this candy called Now and Later. So have you guys ever heard of that candy? Yes, some enthusiastic nods, and I love that. Uh, now and Laters uh, are this like hard, gummy candy. I'm not going to describe it. It sounds terrible when you describe it, but I loved it as a kid. And to this day, the association is so strong that when I sing the book of the Bible song, I taste now and laters. And if I ever eat a now and later as an adult, I'm transported back to third grade Sunday school with the, the chalkboard and then all the books of the Bible, and he would erase one at a time, and we keep singing the song. And so clearly it was effective, right? But I can't help but to see a little bit of irony in me learning about the golden rule with bribery. And now I know, I know, like, you know, when we're teaching kids, it's, it's important to make sure things stick, and, and with positive motivation, positive reinforcement, uh, these things stick better, like Pavlov's dogs, right? And, and like the bell, when the Bible book song plays, or I sing it, or I'm just looking through the Bible, I taste now and laters. So now I don't mean that the, the method of teaching is ineffective. I just think that there's a little bit of irony in that I learned a command about 
love and obedience this way. And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second greatest, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so what we're going to see here is, is what's interesting is that ultimately behavior, uh, or at the very least morality, is not really a part of either of these commandments. Instead, something else entirely shows up. Love. And so when someone asks Jesus what the greatest commandment is, you know, they probably expected something closer to the golden rule, do unto others. Uh, maybe they thought there was candy involved, even. But instead of, what, instead of that, instead of the golden rule, so to speak, Jesus tells him two commands, and they're about love. And so what we're going to see today is that when Jesus was put to the test, he passed, and he passed in more ways than one. And we're going to see that the Pharisees' problem, much like our problem, is a heart problem, not a behavior problem. And finally, we're going to see that, like always, it comes back to Jesus. And so let's pray real quick. Father, we pray that uh, the meditations of our hearts and the words that I speak today would be glorifying to you. We pray that you would uh, show up through the power of your word and uh, through your spirit, Lord, and just pray that you would guide us into deeper love for you as we study your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you can grab your Bibles, we're going to go to Matthew 22, what Morgan just read for us. It's going to be on the screen, too. We're going to read verses 34 through 36 first. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And so first thing we want to pay attention to is this little huddle we got going on here. And let's do a quick recap of, uh, and this is going to sound pretentious, the first century Jewish political landscape. We'll pepper that in our, sent- our conversation during uh, Citigroup this week. We're going to say first century Jewish political landscape. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't like each other, right? In the first century, the Pharisees and Sadducees were, were pretty close to like political parties, in a sense, right? Political religious parties. And last week, you'll remember James, we did a little bit of a deep dive on this. Uh, the, the Pharisees were much more conservative religiously, uh, but they didn't have any political power, per se. And the Sadducees were much more liberal uh, religiously, theologically. In fact, they didn't even believe in the resurrection, we remember. But they did have political, par- or, uh, political power, And so what's most important is that we remember that the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, were not just like political rivals. They did not like each other. They were enemies, for for all intents and purposes, enemies. And so what's interesting is that when this group comes to Jesus, these Pharisees, it's like they see that Jesus just trounced their political rivals. And instead of coming up and like clapping them on the back, great job, we appreciate you, they instead start to huddle and come up with a new game plan to undermine him. And it's ironic that it seems like the only thing the Pharisees and the Sadducees could agree on was how much they didn't like Jesus. And where the Sadducees used like logic and philosophy, like we remember last week, 
the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus using their skills in the Old Testament law. And so the Pharisees get someone from their crew, and they try to put Jesus to the test. And this is their opportunity to embarrass him, undermine his teaching, maybe get some, some cred with the people in the process. And it's this moment, with probably bad intentions, that one of them asks, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And so we know that they don't recognize Jesus' authority. They don't recognize who he is in general, but they definitely don't recognize his authority to teach. They call him teacher here, but it's like almost tongue-in-cheek, right? Because they don't think that he's a teacher. They don't respect him as a teacher. That couldn't be farther from how they really think about him. But, I mean, that being said, this is a pretty good question, right? I mean, this is what I want to know. I want to know what is the most important, what's the greatest commandment? And I think there's essentially two ways to think about this question that they're asking. The, the first is, is this a way that they're trying to reduce the amount of obedience that required of them? So in other words, uh, what's the most important ones? Because we want to make sure we do those. It's like, it's like when you're studying for a test, and you could study everything you learned, uh, or you could just study what you know is going to be on the test, and then you don't have to worry about all the other stuff. So it's like when they come to Jesus, it's like they're asking for a study guide or a cheat sheet, maybe. And so the second way we can think about this is more uh, in terms of purpose and categories for the law. So in other words, uh, this question, or at least the one Jesus answers, the way Jesus answers it, is, is a little less about which rules do we have to study for, what's going to be on the test, and a little more about what's the point of it all, what's the cornerstone of the law. And so based on Jesus' answer, the Pharisees will know what Jesus prioritized in the Old Testament law. And, and as his followers, this is really important because for us, we're going to see what it means to follow him. And we're going to see, really, what this whole Christian life is about. We're going to see what's at the heart of everything we believe about the Christian life. So let's keep reading. we read 37 and 38. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. So if you're following a lot at home, when Morgan read earlier, we heard that Jesus was asked for one commandment, and then he gave two. They asked him for the greatest, the implied single commandment, and he gives two. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. And we're going to get more into that later, but we're just going to focus on this first part that we just read together first. And so the first thing we want to do is we want to see where does this come from? Where is Jesus pulling this out of when he says this is the greatest commandment? And so what we're going to do is we're going to flip back in our Bibles to the Old Testament. It's going to be on the screen, but I encourage you to, to pull it out in your Bible. We're going to go to Deuteronomy 6. I can sing the song for you if you need. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. I didn't want to commit to it. It's the fifth book. Deuteronomy 6. Uh, verses 4 through 9 is what we're going to read. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. 
the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And this passage became one of the most important parts of the Old Testament. To the Jewish people in the first century, and, and really to practicing Jewish people today, this verse, this little passage with these two parts, has become a part of the rhythms of everyday life. The Lord makes it very clear here that the people are to be thinking about this all the time. They're supposed to talk about it when they lay down, when they get up, talk about it to their kids, make sure they get it, when they go out, when they come in, when they, you, know, you get it. It's all the time. It's on the doorpost of your house. It's on your forehead. And so the, the point is that this was supposed to be an all-the-time kind of thing. This was not just uh, memorize it once, get your now and laters, and then move on. This is a whole lifestyle memorization. So it's not surprising that Jesus lands on this as the greatest commandment, right? Jesus and his audience, they probably would have been saying this every day, if not multiple times a day, since they were kids, since they could memorize verses. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, what does it mean for us that this is the greatest commandment? And not only that, but Jesus says it's the first commandment. And, and first is kind of a weird thing to say, because if you have your Bible open in Deuteronomy, you'll notice it's the fifth book. It's not the first. It's not, the, it's not even close to the first command that they're given. We've had the Ten Commandments back in Exodus three books ago. And so why does Jesus call this the first commandment? And it goes back to what I was saying earlier. It's the first commandment not in the sense that it came first in time order. It's the first commandment, and then it precedes all of the other commandments. Or, or in that all of the other commandments flow out of this. And here we see what Jesus is really getting at here. We see that if we wanted to look back through the Old Testament and figure out what the law is really about, we would see this as the starting point. This command to love God with everything you have is the foundation that the rest of the law is built on. And so, you know, in the image of a foundation, if this foundation is not solid, the, the rest of the building won't stand. Right? And so this foundation, this foundational command to love the Lord is the core upon which all the rest of the law is built. And so for some of us, this is kind of strange territory we're getting into. You know, I started this talking about candy and cartoons and Sunday school and getting bribed. And, and now we're talking about some ancient Middle Eastern law. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go on a little bit of a mental journey together. Uh, in the Old Testament, we're going to go back through, imagine that we're in the Old Testament, and God made uh, a covenant with Israel. And so it's like a sort of relational contract, right, with the nation of Israel. And, and there were terms to this contract, and, and these terms are what we call commandments now. And the whole contract is about, or sorry, the, the whole contract and the story of God's interaction with Israel is called the law. 
And so this uh, little mental adventure is important because when we stand here thousands of years later in Madison, Wisconsin, we're thinking about law and commands in terms of law books, right? Books of law, lawyers, this kind of thing. And we can lose sight of, of really what's going on here because of the kind of technical terms that we're talking about. But when we jump back into the story, what we see instead was a lot less of a sort of book of law, like that a lawyer would go through, and a lot more of a marriage story. So now instead of laws and commandments, we have something more closely related to vows at a wedding. And when we're talking about covenant law, what we're really talking about is faithfulness to your spouse. And so we get to this passage in Deuteronomy, and the Lord says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Suddenly we see something a little bit closer to something like, Hear, O Israel, hear me. I'm the only one for you. Love me with your everything. And friends, in a sense, this is what Jesus is getting at here. When we read this Old Testament law, we have to come to the heart of it. The call to love God. The call to love him with every part of us. And we find here the motivation to follow the rest of the vows in the law, or they found the motivation to follow. Jesus says that love for God is the best motivator to keep the rest of the law. And that makes sense, right? If you think back to uh, the last wedding you went to or your wedding, you think back to that time when, when you exchanged vows. We vowed things based on the love that we had for the other, right? When Kinsey and I got married, I, I vowed to be patient with her, kind to her, keep no record of wrongs, not to be self-seeking or dishonest her, dishonor her. And I, and I did this because I loved her. And I do it still because I love her still. And now does this mean that I always get it right or that I'm perfect? Yes, it does. I'm great. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Obviously, obviously it doesn't mean that. And there's grace for that, praise Jesus. But it, but it shows us the important connection here, is that action follows affection. I'm going to say it again. We see here that with obedience, action follows affection. Jesus wants us to see that in order to keep the law, the the vows that Israel made to the Lord at their figurative wedding day, they need to first love him. And he wanted his hearers to say, to see, that this love of God results in a certain kind of loving uh, for others and a certain kind of living. And he's going to show us in a minute what this kind of living is. Uh, but again, let's just, let's just remember where we've been so far. We've seen the Pharisees put Jesus to the test and that he said the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord. So let's keep reading. We're going to go to verses 39 through 40. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And here we are back to the golden rule, right? Except 
if you're like me, it's a little bit different than how you memorized it. It's not quite do unto others. It's a little more love your neighbor. And what's cool here is, that, is for me, is that Jesus is really doing a lot of my work here for me. When we read the, the previous sections, we can really tend to ask, uh, well, what does it look like to love God? What does it look like to love God with all of my everything? And Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. So in a sense, he's unpacking that first commandment with the second one. And a lot of scholars will say that these commands are connected not just because, you know, they're, they're numbers one and two in rank, but because they're kind of two sides of the same coin. So in a sense, what Jesus is saying is that what it means to love the Lord is to love your neighbor. To love the Lord with our everything means that we love those whom the Lord loves. And uh, John says this really bluntly in his letter, in 1 John 3, 11 through 15. He says this, For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. I mean, that's strong language, right? That's a little uncomfortable. John's going from love to death pretty quickly here. And for some of us, for me, this can be uncomfortable language to read. But if we think back, if we think back to this marriage image, think about a couple getting married. And, and for whatever reason, the, the, the wife, the woman's got children already. And so think about halfway through the vows, you know, the, the guy saying, you know, uh, I promise this and that and so on and so forth. And, and then in the middle of it, he stops and he pulls out a sheet of paper and, and he says, I've prepared some vows of my own. And, you know, we're, it's like, oh, it's so sweet. We're going to put this on Instagram or whatever. It's going to be a beautiful moment. Uh, but then he reads his vows and he says, here's the deal. I really love you, but I hate your kids. I cannot stand them. I mean, that would not go over very well at a wedding, would it? I think this is what Jesus is telling us when he connects these first two commandments. Jesus tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves because he understands that in this wedding picture, the Lord is a package deal, right? This woman and her kids are a package deal. You can't have one without the other. And you can't have the Lord without the rest of his people. So they, or we're called to, to love our neighbor because we're called to love the Lord because they're his kids and he loves them too. And so, but Houston, I hear you saying, some of his kids are really annoying. I mean, have you heard that the way that so-and-so speaks to me? Or have you seen how rude this guy is? Or if you're like me, have you heard how loudly this person chews? And so we've all been there, right? It's silly, but, 
but this is true. Like, there's always, we always have somebody in our lives that is difficult to love. Somebody who just grinds our gears for whatever reason. And if this doesn't happen to you, you're either supernatural or lying. And sometimes it's hard to love people, isn't it? And I think the more, the older we get, the, the easier it is for our emotions to kind of cool off. And, and not hating people gets easier and easier, right? But actually loving them, that's a completely different story. That's hard work. And essentially, this is the problem that we're all facing, right? This is the human problem in a nutshell. It's hard to love because we all suffer from this the same thing, this brokenness. None of us loves well. None of us loves the Lord with everything. None of us loves our neighbor as ourselves. None of us have really stacked up to that, right? And ultimately, this is where we come back to Jesus. See, what's really interesting here is that when we go back through the book of Matthew, like we've been for the last couple of years, what we keep seeing over and over again is that Jesus did love his Father perfectly. That he loved and submitted to his Father and to the Holy Spirit perfectly. And, and we see that, that Jesus, as he went, loved his neighbor as himself. There's a story that we read a little while ago, the, the feeding of fi- the 5,000. Really famous story. The, the pretext to that story is that Jesus' cousin had just died, and he's grieving, and he needs some alone time. He needs to go get away and spend some alone time. And people follow him, huge crowd, 5,000 uh, at least follow him, and they're hungry, and they're asking him to feed them. And what we see in this moment is that Jesus, even when he is grieving the loss of his cousin, and he wants so badly to just spend some alone time, he loved these people enough to feed them and to teach them in that moment. And friends, this is the Jesus that we follow. This is the Jesus who loved his neighbor as himself so much that he decided to go to the cross for him. He decided to go to the cross for me, and I am very hard to love. So here we see the really beautiful picture in this passage. The key is not that we all have loved well, but that he has loved us well. The Lord has loved us so much that despite the fact that we are really good at making a mess of the world and our lives and each other, that he came to live with us, die on the cross for our sins, and on the third day he rose again to give us hope that we can be with him in restored relationship. And so as we come to the end, we're going to talk about application in a minute. But again, let's just remember where we've been. We saw the Pharisees came and they tested Jesus. They put him to the test. And we see that he passed the test in so many more ways than one. And second of all, we saw that the the law of God, that it hinges on two things, to love the Lord with our everything and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And third, we remember the good news that where we have failed in doing these, Jesus did not. And because of his death and resurrection, his success means our success. And as always, as we come to a time of 
sort of application, it's going to look different for each of us, depending on where we're at. If you don't know Jesus, if you've not followed him, maybe this is the first time you're hearing about him or what he's all about, I just wanted to encourage you to consider this. Like I said a minute ago, the story of Jesus is a story of the creator of the universe loving us, loving you so much that despite the mess of things, he came to live with us. He died in our place and rose again. And now because of his death and resurrection, we have good relationship with the Lord through faith in him. We can have forgiveness, we can have right relationship, and we can start that process of rebuilding relationships with others. And so the Lord loves you, and he desires a relationship with you, like a father with a long-lost son. I just want to call you to answer his call today. Put your faith in him. And for those of us who have been following Jesus for a while, I want to challenge us to think through these areas of our lives we've been called to love the Lord with. For each of us, some of these are going to be easier than others. So for some of us to love the Lord with our heart or to love him with our affections is really easy. For some of us to, to love the Lord with our soul or, or the way that we model our lives is easier. But whichever is easiest, the call is to do all three. And so to this, I want to commend you a few things, a few ideas. If, if your challenge is to love the Lord with your affections, with your heart, uh, there are fewer ways better to do this than to read the story of his love for you. I'd encourage you to spend some more time in the book of Matthew. Just read about Jesus. Read about the ways that he's loved you so well. And spend time meditating on that love. Think about that love. These are good things to grow our affection for him. And, and ultimately, I think it never hurts to pray for the Lord to grow love in your heart. And I think this is the kind of prayer he loves to answer. It's a whole section in Ephesians about um, praying that we would know the love of God. And so these are the kinds of prayers that he loves to answer. And if your challenge is to love the Lord with your soul or with the way that you model your life, um, I want to encourage you to just sit down with another believer, a, a city group leader, uh, an elder, somebody you trust, a trusted, wise believer, and, and just talk through what it looks like to model our lives after Jesus. And I think this is really what the call to love the Lord with our soul means, is that we model the way that we live after Jesus. And so this could mean your job, it could mean where you live, it could mean all kinds of things. And, and this is a tough one. This is tough, because it's kind of all-encompassing. Um, but I think this is why we should reach out to others, get help for that. It's not a journey that you have to do alone. It's a journey that you do with your community around you. And so get together, get support, encourage each other in how to best walk in love of God. And again, even, even talking about this, even sitting down and talking about this, is such an important first step. And lastly, if your struggle is to love the Lord with your mind, or to love him with your thoughts and desires, I want to challenge you with what the Jewish people have been doing for thousands of years. Memorize and recite the Deuteronomy passage. 
rhythms of, of remembering and reminding ourselves of these things are so helpful for uh, reorienting the way that we think and reorienting our desires. And um, clearly it was, it was powerful enough that Jesus says this is the core. And so I just want to encourage you to take these rhythms and, and work them into your life somehow um, and, and really set your mind on these things. So I know that really all these things are easier said than done. And for that, again, we come back to Jesus. And the good news for us is that he is so patient and he's so loving with us. And his mercy is so great. So let's pray.